Hello, hello, my dear audience. I'm Peter Resnick, and welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick's Toolbox. Once again, I'm recording this show at 1 p.m., so it would be aired 2 p.m. And once again, I'm sorry about it. Uh, I still don't know when we'll have the studio work function normally, uh, but I will let you know once we can do that and we'll be able to receive your phone calls. But for now, unfortunately, the only way we can communicate is through email. So my email is drpeterresnik at gmail.com, D-R-P-E-T-E-R-R-E-Z-N-I-K at gmail.com. And I would really appreciate your feedback now because I feel we're a little bit disconnected because I cannot get your uh, telephone calls. Uh, there is a number of things I want to share with you today. And uh, what came uh, to my mind, the first thing I want to share with you, but it came to me really just a few minutes before I called the studio, uh, just because I came across a page with uh, a little story. The story is from Richard Bach's book, Illusion. And for many years, I've been reading when I teach a course. Uh, in the beginning of the course, I would read this little, I don't know how to call it, poem or write story. I loved it very much, and I loved it so much that I actually um, recited it because I knew it by heart. And lately I stopped, in the last couple of years, I stopped um, reading it, to reciting it to people, so I forgot. I will just read it to you, uh, and then I will explain to you why actually it came to my mind, why I wanted uh, to share with you this, unless you read Richard Bach's Illusion. It's the very beginning of the book. Once there lived a village of creatures along the bottom <clears throat> of a great crystal river. A current of the river swept silently over them all, young and old, rich and poor, good and evil. The current going its own way, knowing its own crystal self. Each creature in its own manner clung tightly to the twigs and the rocks of the river bottom, for clinging was their way of life, and resisting the current, what each had learned from birth. But one creature said at last, I'm tired of clinging. Though I cannot see it with my eyes, I trust that the current knows where it's going. I shall let go and let it take me where it will, clinging. I shall die from boredom. The other creatures laughed and said, Fool, let go and the current you worship will throw you tumbled and smashed across the rocks, and you will die quicker than boredom. But the one heeded them not, and taking a breath did let go, and at once was tumbled and smashed by the current across the rocks. Yet in time, as the creature refused to cling again, the current lifted him free from the river bottom, and he was bruised and hurt no more. And the creatures downstream to whom he was a stranger cried, See a miracle, 
a creature like ourselves, yet he flies. See the Messiah come to save us all. And the one carried in the current said, I am no more Messiah than you. The river delights to lift us free. If only we dare let go. Our true work is this voyage, this adventure. If you did not read, ladies and gentlemen, Richard Bach's uh, little book, Illusions, he also wrote before that, uh, Jonathan Livingston Siegel. If you did not read either of them, I would highly recommend it. It's really enjoyable little books to read. Uh, but I think the reason I wanted to start today's talk with these verses is because, uh, you know, the show is called Dr. Resnick's Toolbox. And my intention is, as it was a year and a half when I started doing this show, to share with you with the tools I have. But how do you know when you listen and I say, well, practice this tool for three weeks, practice this for nine weeks. How do you know that it will work? That it's worthwhile to invest your time. It takes really an effort to, to practice some uh, technique or uh, uh, mental imagery exercise. How do you know that it will be useful? You, you don't. You take a risk, just like this creature trying something new, something that you have not done. Uh, you invest. Or as my teacher of blessed memory, Colette, said, nothing of value happens unless you make a leap into uncertainty. So as I share with you different tools, and if you have an inkling, have kind of intuition, that's, that's for me. I could benefit from it. Just take a risk. Put all your energy in doing this exercise, not accepting yet another chore in your daily life. But look at this time. And most of exercises that I suggest take not more than a minute, two, five the most a day. So look at it as, as a challenge and also as a total commitment that you're making for these three weeks or six weeks and see what happens then. Um, so that's that's what I think would be a good way to do actually anything that you do in life. Do it with passion, not expecting, and we spoke about the expectations, how you get trapped in expectations and you don't focus on the now, here and now. Um, but giving your best shot, ex uh, welcoming the best potential that is may come out of your effort. Not exact, exact, even though I know uh, some uh, practitioners, some teachers suggest you have to visualize, you have to see clearly what you want. You need to have an intention, what you want to receive from your efforts. But not, I don't believe that a clear intention even is limiting, because you may get much more. In fact, there were studies, oh God, that takes me now into another story. Uh, there were studies actually that demonstrate that indirect prayer works more powerful than direct prayer. 
uh, I think it was in Scotland some 30 years ago, a group called Spin Drift decided to explore, to understand if the prayer works. For example, we cannot practically to prove 100% the existence of God. But we can learn about the existence of God inferentially, meaning if something in the book that is called the book of God is said, and we can prove that thing as true, we can say, okay, then the book may be true. And then since in the book it's written about God, God is, that's a reality. So anyway, uh, we know that um, God in, in uh, book we call Torah or what you call, call uh, also Old Testament uh, says pray talk to me pray to me uh, and I will respond or in the in the New Testament it's written ask and you shall be answered seek and you shall find knock and the door shall be open so they said uh, at spring spin drift that's let's experiment let's and apparently um, the seeds of grass grow, you know, I, I used to have a house and I know you uh, water, you put seeds down in the ground and then you water them and within a couple of weeks, um, the grass sprouts, the grass begins to grow. And so what they did was they, they put three containers, I don't know exactly how, what kind of containers there were, I just heard about the study from Dar, uh, Dr. Larry Dossi. Uh, and so three containers, and they put the same amount of seeds in the ground in each of them. And one container they just watered. The second container they watered and they asked, they prayed, uh, let these um, seeds sprout and grow and become grass. Let the grass grow strong and big and it visualized how big it will be. And then the third uh, container with um, with the seeds, they watered, but they prayed, let the best potential of these seeds manifest itself, which is called a non-direct prayer, which means uh, not in my hands, but in yours, basically. God, you know better how to manifest the best potential. And so after three weeks, what they discovered was that this, the seeds prayed for with the direct prayer grew twice as big as the seeds not prayed for, just watered. But the seeds prayed for with indirect prayer that is, let the best potential manifest itself, um, grew twice as big as, as the seeds prayed for with direct prayer and uh, four times as big as the seeds which were not prayed at all. So uh, therefore, I encourage you again, uh, when you make a decision to, to use certain tool to master certain quality about yourself. All you need to do 
is to set the intention. Uh, I, I have the intention to accomplish this and this, and then decide that I will welcome the best potential and I will put my energy every day the way uh, it's required. Uh, because as you know, I give you when I give you tools, there are certain requirements, there are certain rules you follow. So you have to follow the rules and do the exercises exactly the way I, I give it to you. And then you will see for yourself the unfoldment of that experience and what will come out of it. Uh, there is another thing I wanted to share with you. This I prepared a couple of days ago because uh, a friend of mine sent me one page with what is called six little stories with lots of meaning. Excuse me. <clears throat> Number one, once all villagers decided to pray for rain on the day of prayer all people gathered but only one boy came with the umbrella that is faith just take it in number two when you throw babies in in the air they laugh because they know you will catch them that is trust I actually remember, you know, doing this game where I would ask my daughter Hannah when she was five years old to fall back, you know, and it's kind of scary to fall back. And I said, Daddy's hands are right here. And I put my hands to her shoulders. And they said, I'm just moving shoulders back, fall back. And she did. In the first time, a little bit reluctantly. And then she knew. And I never, of course, you know, never let her down. And that's how we develop trust. Uh, interesting. Number three, every night we go to bed without any assurance of being alive the next morning. But still we have, we set the alarms to wake up. This is hope. Four, we plan big things for tomorrow in spite of zero knowledge of the future. That is confidence. And by the way, the, this, uh, the word confidence actually comes from Latin root confidencia, which means faith. So the same thing, you know, we have faith that, that we wake up next morning, that we'll be able to do things. That's a leap of faith, truly, because we never know. That's why we have to be uh, focused on the now. The tomorrow is not an hour hands. Number five, we see the world suffering, but still we get married and have children. That is love. Uh, yes, yeah, I would expand on it actually, but they tried to make it as short as possible. So it's good enough. But my comment would be that it's also a need and a number of psychologists, psychiatrists, like, like William Glasser, for example, in hierarchy of needs, number one defined hierarchy, uh, the need for love and belonging. It's a, it's a need. 
I don't know, biological, psychological, but we have the need to have love, to have connectedness. Uh, number six, an old man's shirt. On, on an old man's shirt was written a sentence. I am not 80 years old. I am sweet 16 with 64 years of experience. That's an attitude. That's so true. That's, I loved it. I loved it. Uh, in fact, you know, I don't know who, who composed these four, six verses. Uh, but of course, 20, almost 2,500 years ago, Greek philosopher Epictetus said, it's not the things or events that affect us, but the attitude that we take toward them. Indeed, uh, if a per that person who said 64 years of experience and he's 16, if he lives by that, studies show, depending on the attitude, the person can be healthy or can deteriorate. And I could tell you many stories of that because I came across in my practice people who, who were not that sick, but quickly deteriorated because they basically were pessimistic and, and uh, always focusing on doom and gloom. And I've seen people gravely ill and recovered uh, what would be called miraculously, but they had that spirit uh, of fighting. Um, and again, people, I think uh, you know that I worked with a lot of patients um, who suffered from cancer. And the best prognosis of the outcome, uh, what will happen six months or a year after the diagnosis is a person's state of mind. That is, if they, they give up, they can quickly deteriorate. And if they are willing to fight, it, it's interesting. Actually, I read one study which showed that uh, people deteriorated very quickly if they were pessimistic and expected negative outcome. But in two situations, two um, attitudes produced what would be called miraculous healings. One, if they were very positive and did something to recover, put all their energy in recovering, and the other, if they were in denial, which was quite a surprise to me. But think about it, in denial, which means they said, I don't have cancer, I am fine, I am okay, and live truly, they believed. No, that's not me. And that's denial, because objective tests demonstrated the person has a tumor, and yet the tumor would disappear. It's as if we send a message to the body that tumor doesn't exist, it's not there. It's as if like we would imagine that it's not there and we do mental images, imagery to get rid of tumors, to heal, to increase, the, uh, improve the immune system, strengthen the immune system. So, and the person in denial basically doing the same thing, saying it's not there. And once the person believes it's not there, it has to go. Interesting, right? Now, uh, I'm into stories today. The next thing actually uh, I wanted to tell you uh, is not a story. I want to respond to an email written by Fernando. He asked me a question. How can I communicate 
more effectively. And he wrote at the end, uh, you can use my name. Uh, he didn't give me uh, a lot of details about his life, simply wrote, how can I communicate more effectively? I don't know whether it's in personal relationship or in business, but I have to tell you, uh, Fernando, I hope you're listening to this show. You are already on the way to communicating more effectively. I tell you why, because you ask this question rather than asking a question, why I'm surrounded by people who just don't understand me. And believe me, I, I ex had this experience as people came into my office saying, I don't understand why I'm surrounded by idiots. But you're asking the right question, which means you are taking responsibility. It reminds me of, uh, maybe you heard Sadhguru uh, and a sage, a master from India who is living now, who said, do not try to fix whatever comes in your life. Fix yourself in such a way that whatever comes, you will be fine. Isn't that profound? I will repeat if you want to kind of think about it. Do not try to fix whatever comes in your life. Fix yourself in such a way that whatever comes, you will be fine. And basically, that's what, Fernando, that's what you're asking. How can I fix myself? That, because, because it means you're not communicating, you feel effectively, uh, somebody doesn't understand you, maybe you don't understand somebody else, and you're saying, how can I fix myself so that when I communicate, when something comes from the outside, I am good, I am okay. So here is my answer, I thought about it. Uh, there are three main principles, that's my thought, maybe somebody else could uh, enrich it. Uh, with their ideas. So you're absolutely welcome again to give me feedback. Hopefully you will be able to call, but for now, send me an email. But I think there are three main principles in any communication or any negotiations. Number one, to view a person or persons that you talk to as intelligent and as worthy as you are. Worthy of what? Of attention, of respect. Just to never see somebody as less than somebody else or you. They may be less knowledgeable in one area, but they may be much more knowledgeable and powerful in another area. Therefore, you accept that the person who is you're communicating with, with is as intelligent and as worthy as you are. Number two, to accept that just as you have your reasons and motives and interests, this person or these persons have their own. And number three, to speak the language that is understood and acceptable by the other person that you talk to or persons. But first, let me actually tell you 
a story. I, I today am in the mood of entertaining you. Uh, that uh, comes to me about speaking the language to be understood. Uh, a little more than 30, no, more, like maybe 30, 32 years ago, I was taking a week-long course with a Kabbalah teacher, Kabbalist from the United Kingdom, Zev Ben Shimon Halevi. There were 47 students. We all lived in Rybrook, New York, in the castle. Uh, it was relatively expensive, so he rented this castle, and, and we, uh, two people lived in one room. Uh, it was beautiful, right on the Hudson River. There were some hours of downtime every day when we could socialize, get to know each other. And at one point, there were maybe five or six of us sitting in a circle. And someone had an idea for each of us in that group to share some big lesson that we learned in our lives. I honestly, I don't remember what I shared with. I, I remember everybody shared. I don't remember which of my experiences I shared. And I don't remember any other person speaking except one. All these years, I remember a story told by a man who also came from the United Kingdom to assist, in fact, to assist our teacher, to assist Ben Shimon, uh, Zeb Ben Shimon Halevi. And this man's name was Ben, a man in his 60s. I was at that time, maybe 38, 37. And that's the story I want to share with you. Uh, ben told us when he was in his 30s, he was a very successful businessman. Um, he earned his black belt in karate. He traveled to many countries. He climbed Mount Everest. He wrote a book on overcoming obstacles. Uh, but till that time, uh, till his mid-30s, he didn't have much time for dating. And finally, one day, he saw her as he was attending a party given by a friend. He immediately approached her, uh, showing her into his interest in her, asking her a ton of questions, sharing uh, with her little anecdotes from his life. And at the end of the party, he asked her if, she, if they could meet again, they could talk again. And she said, no. Uh, that both surprised and upset him. After the party, Ben asked his friend about the lady because he did not even know her name. The friend told him that her name and that she was a very accomplished woman coming from an old British family, unmarried, but very selective who she socialized with. Ben asked if there was another occasion that he could meet this woman. Indeed, there was another gathering and at his friend's home, which she promised to attend. And Ben asked to be invited, and indeed he was. And at the gathering, Ben approached the woman again. She was friendly. They spoke for a short time. Then she excused herself and went back to, the, to talk to a, a friend, female friend. At the end of the party, Ben approached Kate, 
uh, that was her name, uh, and told her that he had tickets to a show she previously mentioned, saying that it was impossible to get tickets. She politely declined his invitation. To make a long story short, Ben told us that he tried to storm the fortress, as he called it, at least four or five times without any success. Meanwhile, Ben's birthday was coming up. And his friend said to him that he was preparing for Ben a very special present. His friend told him with excitement that he made it with his own hands. And it was an old English bow. Ben knew that it was an incredibly arduous work and usually takes six months to make an English bow. He knew all about it, but he never held in his hands an English bow. Ben's friend said that Ben will have an honor to put on the bowstring. The friend asked Ben if Ben knew how to do it. And Ben he was told us he was slightly offended by the question. He just nodded. He had never done it before, and he knew it would be hard. But he also knew the strength in his arms. He was an athlete. He was a fighter. So Ben took, uh, when when the friend brought out the, the bow and gave him the string, Ben took a deep breath, held the bowstring in one hand after he tied it on one end, and then with the other hand, with all his strength, to pull the bow down to bend it. And the bow split in two, broke down in two pieces. He looked at his friend, whose eyes were filled with tears. And that very moment, Ben understood why Kate who he pursued for so long, was not interested. He walked over to a friend, hugged him and said, my dear friend, not only did you give me a precious gift in which you put so much love, but you answered the big questions, a big question that tormented me this whole last year, why Kate is not interested in me. Just as I did with this bow, I used my language, the language of a fighter, karate master, with all my strength and pulled something that needed a gentle twitch, and then another twitch, and then another. And then uh, Ben told us that he wrote a short note to Kate, asking her permission to write her a letter and left the note with his friend. In a month, he received a positive reply with her address. He wrote again, now already a letter, and received the letter back. They corresponded for a couple of months till he asked if he could have a talk with her on over the phone, to which she agreed. In another couple of months, they went out for the first time. Uh, then I remember Ben fell silent, probably going back to his memory. And we all, of course, said to him, and what happened? You went out, and then what? 
and Ben smiled. Uh, he said, just before coming to the United States, Kate and I celebrated our 30th anniversary. Why I'm telling you this story? Because it came to my mind. No, because people want to jump to success. And success is a slow, slow buildup. Success is an event, but you need to be committed to the process and appreciate that process without, without jumping, without uh, putting all your energy and expecting tomorrow uh, the outcome that you want. It will not going to happen. Uh, in fact, it, a week ago, uh, we, um, you know, I read every, weekly uh, portions of the Bible. And uh, we read another our portion, the last portion of the book of Numbers. And we know that the, um, the Torah is very concise. Very few words express deep meaning. And suddenly in this portion, there are 49 verses out of 5,880 verses, which is not so much. And 49 verses are dedicated to a very boring thing. It's written, and it's just before people enter the promised land, it's written, and they run from this town to this town, and from this town and this town, and then traveled from this town to this town, and they traveled from that town, and like over 50 locations are mentioned. Why to repeat it when it was already said oh, through, through two previous books, which places they travel from one to another. And the uh, sages say the reason it's written, the reason so much spaces in the Torah is dedicated to this idea is to say, to get to the promised land, they had to travel. It was not to what play, where they stopped and where they stayed, but the main word was traveled. You, they traveled from one place to another. They traveled from that place to the other place. It is by traveling, the journey itself, that refines us. It's the exercise that you do uh, help you to become what you want to become, just like with Wizard of Us, where the lion wants to become courageous and it's his journey to receive courage makes him courageous and so the same with the rest uh, of the travelers there all as nelson mandela wrote a book uh, uh, a long way to freedom and so the same with the with the hebrew people coming out of egypt they needed to have a long journey we need to travel a long journey from slavery to freedom. What slavery? From slavery, whatever enslaves us. You know, I've been, you know, for the last year, if not more, I've been talking to you about the six pillars of well-being, particularly fifth pillar, our attitudes and, uh, excuse me, and character traits. 
And each one to refine takes years, years. So it's a long way to freedom. There was a Russian writer, Gleb Uspensky, who wrote, drop by drop, I squeezed out of myself a slave. A slave of what? Only he knew. Certain qualities, certain habits, it takes a long time. I just want you to know it takes a long time. Be patient with yourself. Be respectful of the process. That is... changes that you notice. That's why uh, I, th I think I said, yes, I spoke to you about uh, the uh, WIT process that I developed, WIT, W-I-T, Will Integration Training, where you take one particular exercise to build your will. Because I can give you all the ideas about how to change different qualities that you find in yourself that are problematic, but unless you have strong will, you will not be able to keep your commitment to make the changes. So the first thing you need to do is to work on your will. Uh, but I already spoke to you about it. And if, if you are interested, send me an e email. I will gladly send you the whole series of exercises and the write-up that I have about will. Uh, and I would suggest that you take it 12 um, different exercises and I would suggest that you practice for three weeks each. It's not difficult, but it's a commitment for 36 weeks and it's a little more, it's more than uh, six months, more than it's almost eight months. So in eight months you can really make big changes in yourself. Let's go back to communication. So as the, remember, there are three ideas one must keep as guiding principles if one is to communicate effectively. After these stories, as you understand, I'm coming back to answering the question that Fernando posed, and that is how to communicate more effectively. So, as I said, the first is to view a person as being as intelligent uh, as, as you are. There is nothing else to say. Number two, to accept that just as you have your reasons and motives and interests, so they have their own, or he or she has the, her own. Uh, the best way, not just to accept and understand, but to practice it, the best way I know is the way uh, Marshall Rosenberg described in his book, Nonviolent Communication. I very highly recommend that you get the book. Uh, his technique is taught at the United Nations. He was able to go to Rwanda, remember, where uh, Tutsis, people of the Tutsi tribe slaughtered 800,000 people from Hutu tribe. So, and he brought leaders of two groups together, and many of them 
lost loved ones and knew that people who participated in negotiations were the murderers. And yet he, by using his techniques of communication, he was able to make them sit and understand each other because they have to live together. So if you have difficulties communicating, more than likely is that uh, one of the mistakes that Marshall Rosenberg describes are made. So I, I will shortly give you an idea of what his approach is. It's in a way, it's very, very simple. It's actually four steps in this communication. Uh, number one, very often people judge other people. So they start uh, their communication already with the judgment, they make statements, oh, you do or you feel this way, you are that you are that. So what uh, Marshall Rosenberg suggests is when you communicate, you don't judge, you make observations. What's the difference between uh, observation and judgment? What do you think? Like if you say I I'm wearing a burgundy shirt, for example, tell me think about it, answer your, my question in your mind. If you say, uh, this burgundy shirt, I think doesn't look good on you is a judgment on observation. It is an observation, because you said it is. Um, it seems to me or I think that it doesn't go. So that's you just shared with what you observed, you feel that this shirt doesn't look good. But if you would say, why did you put this ugly shirt on, then that would be a judgment. Uh, if you say, uh, John was disrespectful, if you talk about your child, John was disrespectful. That's your judgment. Because you uh, already passing a judgment on how he felt, and he felt like not respecting you, or you judge him being aggressive or whatever you judge. If you say, John interrupted me while I was talking four times. That's an observation. You just made a statement. So, so number one is when you uh, communicate with people, you must only make an observations. That is, let's say uh, something happened and you say, you know, I noticed uh, you left lights. Uh, let's say it's business. You, when you left yesterday, you, you were the last person and you laid, left all the lights on. So that's an observation. You didn't say you were careless, you don't care about the business. No, you just make an observation. So this is number one. Number two, uh, you acknowledge a person's feelings. And you acknowledge your feelings. Um, that is, let's say, a person is is upset about something. You will you don't say, why are you ang so angry? But first you make an observation. I hear you are raising your voice, or I see 
uh, your face is sad, and then you acknowledge the feelings. It seems to me you are dissatisfied, you are upset about something. It seems to me, even if you say ang angry, that's okay. But if you say, it seems to me you are angry, then you're not judging, but it's you're sharing with your observation about his experience. Once you say it seems, it's already not a judgment, you acknowledge possibility of certain feelings. Then, remember, that's first and second. First, not judging, but making observations. The second, um, acknowledging a person's feelings. The third, acknowledging the need behind the feelings, which means uh, you acknowledge, uh, um, once you said, uh, it seems to me that you're angry, uh, and you may, it may come from the need for safety, or it may come for the, from the need to, uh, or, or of a feeling that you are respected, whatever it is. You, again, you say it may, because you are not stating that it is so, because it's an assumption. But you still acknowledge to the best of your ability the need that stands behind uh, a person's behavior, which means you don't condemn it. Just like you have needs, this person may have needs. And then finally, you, number four, is you state a person's desire, a person's a request of what he wants from you. Let me give you an example of how actually it was done one time. Uh, I was in the office. I remember telling it to somebody, I think one of my students, but maybe I even told you in one of our talks. Anyway, sorry for repeating if I already did tell you this. Uh, one time I was uh, working at the Shakta Center for Complementary Medicine, and I heard screaming. Somebody at the front desk was screaming. And like, almost was violent and my uh, people at the front desk didn't know what to do. I walked out and, and kind of our eyes met and it's like they expected me, Mr. Psychologist, to help out. So I walked over and the first thing I do, did I with this man, I didn't say to him, stop. In fact, one of the um, people at the front desk was saying to him, please don't yell at me. That's already, you know, aggravating the situation. And uh, I walked over, extended my hand, said, hi, I'm Peter Resnick, or Dr. Resnick, whatever. When you extend your hand, a person most of the time automatically extends his or her hand. And then I said to him, I heard, I heard uh, the loud noises, I heard the screaming, so that's why I walked out. I, it seems to me you upset. Would you like to share with me what happened? So notice what I did. I made an observation. I didn't say, how dare you are? Why are you screaming? I acknowledged that the person is feeling a certain way without uh, accusing him of anything. And then I asked him what his concerns are about. 
and he told me, you know, I have cancer. I was scheduled to see Dr. X, whatever. Um, and I came here. It's so it took, takes me two hours to get from Connecticut here. And I came and he is not there. Um, so I am very upset. And I immediately acknowledge what his need. And I said to him, uh, I'm so sorry because the least thing that you, uh, you expect from the medical facility is that a person, if you were to see a doctor, that the doctor would be there. Notice what I did. I acknowledged the need behind his screaming. I didn't condemn his screaming, but acknowledged it. And immediately he could a little bit come down. And then I said to him, remember the fourth is a request. I said to him, and you you might you um, rightfully so want uh, somebody to acknowledge that somebody made a mistake. Let's. Uh, so th that was the first part. Remember, I went through these four steps for him. But now I go through the same four steps for me. And that is, I said, uh, I, I uh, forgive me, please, you know, but like I got concerned uh, because I heard, heard the screams and uh, and I knew that, you know, we, the the two people at the front desk were upset and uh, and they need to feel safe when they are at work. So they, it's not their fault. Possibly somebody made a mistake, uh, but we would appreciate uh, you speaking a little quieter. But notice what happened. So I did uh, now on our on our behalf, uh, the same thing that I did for him. Uh, I didn't judge, acknowledged our feelings, what the need behind the feelings, and posed uh, a gentle request that she, he comes down. But because we already acknowledged his needs, and he was involved, and I gave him time and attention, he already come down. And then I said, let me look at, at your... Uh, sleep, you know, where the appointment was made. And apparently we, we just saw that he made a mistake. He actually, it was a different day that he was scheduled for. Uh, but, and, and the problem was resolved. He understood it and he left satisfied because somebody was speaking with, to him with respect and compassion. But what would happen if we would just say, don't, don't yell, you cannot talk to like this, and we would attack him back or become defensive. He would storm out, probably throw out the paper and never even never would come back. Bad for him and back for the center uh, because he was upset and he would never look even at the paper, never know that he actually made a mistake. So just to repeat, uh, I repeat this way of communicating and that is step one, step two, step three, step four. Um, without judgment, acknowledging the feelings of the other person and your own, and then accepting that there is a need behind a person's feelings. They are frustrated uh, for a reason. And then finally, 
uh, acknowledging what they need uh, and what they would require or request. And also we can request from them and then find somewhere a solution, uh, happy medium. So this is a step two. And remember I said there are three principles and the second one is acknowledging and understanding the needs. And the third principle, as I said, when I told you the story about Ben, is speaking the right language. That's what, that's what this story was about, is speaking to the person the language that they can understand. Uh, that, the best way for that, uh, I don't know a better way than, than something I already shared with you, and that is uh, morpho human morphology. If you remember, I told you it's the science and art of face reading or human morphology. And I wrote a book, Face Reading Secret for Successful Relationships. And the whole idea is when you communicate with people, whether it's your loved ones or business partners, you have to know that depending on their temperament, their body type, they speak a different language. It's literally like speaking a different language. And I spoke about being, um, you know, in the whole world, being having four different temperaments. Uh, the French called them bilious, lymphatic, sanguine, and what they called the nervous. It's four body types, four energy types, four ways people uh, understand the reality. So one person, when you speak to that person, may accept something that you're saying as uh, supportive and loving and compassionate, and the other person will get angry at the same thing that you're saying and, and will think that it's you being condescending. Why? Because they perceive reality in different ways. And as I said uh, uh, in the book and, and in lectures, that there, it's been for, for 4,000 years that this body of knowledge has evolved and it was all done through observation. So they, people notice that people with certain bone structure, uh, certain appearance, respond differently to other people and even to physical environment. They uh, have preferences in what environment they live. They have uh, a different way to respond to infection. They have different digestive system, uh, different respiratory system. One is long distance runner. The other one runs out of steam quickly. That you can learn uh, if you either listen to my lectures, uh, one, for example, you get can familiar, familiarize yourself with this way of communicating with people and understanding the right way to communicate to the right people. If you go on YouTube, I have a presence on YouTube. If you go Dr. Peter Resnick or Peter Resnick, uh, PhD, and I have a page, not a page, what is it called? an account, I have over 100 different uh, videos there. And many of them of reading faces and teaching about different uh, temperaments and different facial types. So you can get 
actually one of the videos there is called Introduction to Face Reading. I don't remember it. Either Introduction to Face Reading or Introduction to Human Morphology. I would very highly recommend that you um, read up on that. That's concerning communication. So one, people are as intelligent as you are to nonviolent communication. I very highly recommend the book by Marshall Rosenberg, Nonviolent Communication. Unless you picked up from my short description uh, how it works. And three, learning about people's appearance, about their temperaments. It's the best way to to interview uh, people that you're um, getting for uh, hiring or firing and two if you if you are applying for a job to understand your prospective employer anyway uh, i have now time is coming for us to say goodbye i hope next week we'll finally have the whole system fixed and i will be able to receive your phone calls for now all i can hope is that you send your emails you're absolutely welcome to write Dr. Peter Resnick at gmail.com. I wish you a wonderful week. Be happy. Peace to all who want to live in peace.